0: The Digital Transition. The Digital Transition, a podcast series created to assist those tasked with implementing digital strategies. Where we will share our knowledge and experiences to support you in your transition. Welcome to the Digital Transition, podcast number 29. I'm your host, Nathan Hildebrand, and today I'm chatting with Bonnie Ryan from GS1 Australia about creating a digital thread. Before I talk to Bonnie, I need to talk to you about our exclusive sponsor, NBS. NBS is a global leading technology platform that combines the best content and creativity for anyone involved in the design, supply, and construction of the built environment. NBS Chorus is revolutionizing construction specification with cloud-based collaboration. Integrate seamlessly with your building model, allowing you to increase your productivity and reduce risk. So to learn more about NBS, please head to their website, www.thenbs.com.au. Now on with the show. So thanks very much for taking the time to talk to us today, Bonnie.
1: Oh, you're welcome, Nathan. Nice to be here. So
0: firstly, Bonnie, for the listeners that are not aware of who you are, can you tell us a little bit about yourself?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, so my name's Bonnie Ryan. I work for GS1 Australia. So I've got a fairly long um, background in supply chain uh, automation. So I started my career so around the mid-90s, a little bit before the internet was commercialised. So that uh, sort of gives away a little bit (laughs) about how long I've been around. Um, And at that time, I was working for AT&T, helping the uh, trade and transport industry lodge electronic import and export declarations into, uh, into Australian customs. And so that really sparked, I guess, the beginning of a very long career since. And I've been in that sort of space Ever since working, I've worked with most of Australia's, you know, top 200 organisations in one way, shape or form, helping them to, you know, digitise, automate, integrate systems, you know, get the data flowing. And for the past 13 or so years, I've been at GS1 Australia, you know, helping industry adopt global data standards to automate the extended supply chain. So you know, often companies do a lot of work integrating their own information within their own four walls. And there's still companies that don't do that very well. But really, when you're talking about supply chain, it's a lot more complex. You've got lots of players in, in, you know, growing countries around the world. You know, supply chains have gone global. And so, you know, digitizing that um, is, is a little bit tricky. So that's the cornerstone of the work that we do at GS1 is helping industry to be more efficient, integrate their supply chains and get that data, you know, kind of flowing smoothly and seamlessly across across the value chain. So I've been doing that for a long time now.
0: I feel like you've oversimplified it. And I know that through our conversations (laughs) earlier, we have had kind of a broad discussion about how big this topic could potentially be. But in a Reader's Digest version, you know, in a you know in a you know sixty second purchase order type thing, <laughs> could you explain yeah. a little bit about what your company GS One Australia actually does?
1: So GS One um, was established by industry back in the mid nineteen seventies when uh, retailers around the world decided to implement scanning at the point of sale, and so the very thing that was required in order for that to happen was to standardise product identification. So if you go into any retailer today, you'll see a barcode on the product. It will be a GS1 barcode and it will have a number below that barcode and that will be a globally unique identification of, of that product. So every single product globally has its own unique birth certificate, if you like. Yep. And so retail has been on this journey for the last 45 years. And, you know, today we go shopping and we take this very much for granted. You know, you go to the supermarket and you go to the checkout and you scan your product. But there's 6 billion scans every single day around the world. And if you think about 40 years ago when, you know, the knowledge about technology was pretty immature compared to today the change management effort required to get every manufacturer in the world to apply the same standardised identifier to every product in the world that costs every retail point of sale checkout in the world. So, yes, (laughs) I made it sound a bit simple, uh, but that's in fact what happened. And the BBC actually... um, Kind of voted the barcode as one of the top fifty things that changed the world economy. So we do take it very much for granted today, but it's still uh, incredibly relevant. And there's still industries that are yet to travel this journey. And you know, the building and construction sector is one of those because they still they still live very much in an analogue world.
0: Yeah. And I think the reason why people take this whole thing for granted is because the number of people that frequent shops most of them are in product development or in or in, in retail or developing products to sell in retail, so they wouldn't actually understand the process that they need to go through or the, or manufacturers need to go through to actually apply and then obtain uh, the globally unique identification. Which is which is yeah. you know the barcode so that it can be sold yeah. you know either in it's in in one country or, or in many,
1: but that's just, that yeah that's exactly right.
0: Now I think for the people that are yet to listen to my discussion with Lars in episode twenty seven, they'd really be slightly confused and wondering what our, the relevance of our conversation today would actually be, um, but. Before we let them in, I guess, on, in on our little secret, you know, <laughs> let's firstly talk about the challenges. And I think first of all, you know, you, you, you hit the nail on the head straight away by saying that, you know, retailers were able to make their changes back in the 1970s and had their massive change management to enable this whole system change where, you know, you would have had retailers walking around with their little uh, stamp guns where they used to stamp the, uh, the price on every single product. And the cashier would stand there and type in the prices of everything. So they would never know how many of each product they sold, except if they went to check the shelves. Now the construction industry is very analog. And, uh, you know, right now we've got a a situation where asset owners or most people wouldn't even know what uh, their built assets are actually made from, built from. Now, unfortunately we have seen tragedies uh, like the Grenfell fire where they actually had products that were not suitable and flammable when they really shouldn't have been apart from trying to solve all the words problems with this one, but how could this be prevented in the future?
1: Well, you know, a very, very fundamental place to start is to have an unambiguous understanding right across the value chain about what something actually is. Yep. So, you know have the reality today is that in the building industry it's actually quite difficult to ascertain what what a material is because every actor or every player in the value chain has a different version of the truth has their own kind of version right so so we don't have any degree of certainty the ability to understand what a product actually is, of what it was composed, where it was manufactured, under what conditions, where it was procured, where it was delivered, where it was installed. You know, these processes are all very siloed and therefore it's really difficult to obtain an end-to-end picture of the design-to-maintenance process because we don't have the fundamentals in place. And the fundamentals is to have, a common, consistent language, if you like, when we make reference to specific materials or objects or products or assets, so that we can start to build systems around a common understanding and that's really step one
0: yeah it's part of this whole process i People would think automatically. So you know, GS1's involved. You know, they're the 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 holder of the barcode. Now, mm. the the answer to this problem isn't that uh, we'd have a barcode uh, placed on every single product or material that's installed on a built asset, so someone can go along and scan it. That's not really the actual answer at all. It's it's more so about the the way in which this system is actually based. So it's actually a, it's a it's a data logging system, and depending and I, and I guess the question you know raising I guess a a question about the retail industry, how much data does a uh, a product manufacturer have to actually in the in the retail sector have to provide to GS1 as part of their registration for a barcode at this at this point in time?
1: So at the moment, it's very minimal. Yep. And, you know, just one really allocates the identifier that guarantees that uniqueness and that birth certificate if you like yep. to the product. The um the master data about those products, that is all of the attributes. You know, if you take a simple can of Coke, it's like, you know, what are the ingredients, um, what batch, when was it when was it produced, what batch number was it, how you know, how what are the volumetrics and dimensions, the of the unit, the packaging, the everything that goes to play, really has to be shared with the customer. So the manufacturers have this data, that, and they use GS1, the, the GS1 data standard framework, in order to exchange that data with multiple customers, yeah. so that you don't have, you know, that so that you don't have to build these point-to-point solutions for each you know, customer that you deal with. You want to have sort of an industry standard, again, this kind of global language where, you know, dimensions are captured in the same way, product brand and descriptions and, you know, dates, all of the different kind of data elements that are required are presented in the same way so that you can more easily share that data with your your value chain stakeholders. If you think about the GS1 standards as, a, as kind of some building blocks, you know, kind of Lego blocks, and you, you kind of choose the right Lego blocks, you put them together based on what application you want to achieve. So if you want to, uh, you know, achieve a, a point of sale process, then that's one set of building blocks. If you want to achieve goods receiving in a warehouse, then that's a different, slightly different set of building blocks. But they're all there. They're all there, waiting to be kind of used, if you like.
0: And it's just that the industry is uh, closing its eyes to it, head in the sand, maybe we could say.
1: Well, it's a highly fragmented industry, yep. and it's challenging. It has to. Each industry comes to this in their own time, I suppose. You know, the, you know retail was first, healthcare wasn't far behind. You've got you know transport. You've got lots and lots of industries that have come to this because they try and digitise. And then they stumble because the data, you know, becomes difficult to obtain and difficult to share, and so there's wasted efforts along the way. So I guess the message is that it, you know it's a very well defined framework now that we that we have to offer to industry, and it's really um, about working with us to understand what the requirements are, and then and then have a program in place to implement. But you were saying before about not wanting to put bar or not needing to put barcodes on every material and that could be true but the other side of this is that if you want to capture data about a physical object then you have to have a a mechanism to do that so whether it's a barcode or whether it's an RFID tag or whether it's something that's etched onto the Object or the material, or it could be sensors or IoT devices as technologies move forward, you need to have some sort of physical way of capturing data so that it builds the bridge between the physical object and the digital world. Uh, Because you want to be able to do that integrity check between what is being proposed in digital format and is that a true reflection of what is actual in the real world? So the the barcode or or life type technologies provide that bridge between the physical and the digital.
0: That's going to be that's going to be an interesting challenge for industry. But one of the things that I find really powerful in the retail sector is and and, and it and it's you know it, it could get it better is the performance of the product recall system.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: You know, and there's positives and negatives to it. So let's first take the negative side of it. You know, at the moment you know, sadly, each person goes and purchases specific items or products. And unfortunately they're not individually tracked. Um, so then people can actually be contacted if there actually is a problem. And, you know, I often think about this and then sometimes maybe actually people don't want to be tracked because it's something that I want people <laughs> knowing about. But if it was, you know, something where each individual item you purchase was tracked and then you could then be contacted if there was problems, it would be great. And... On the flip side of that, I can tell you, you know, being a driver of a Toyota, I've had Takata airbag recall mail sent to me for, for you know, over the last five years, you know, because of, you know, temporary airbags being put in, the temporary airbag not being suitable and, and, and needing to be replaced as well. So they have really good systems in place for car systems in terms of being able to contact you through the registrate, you know, vehicle registration and the like. But how interesting or how important would it be, I guess, in terms of talking about the ability to identify products in the future? You know, yeah. specifically going back and looking at the past and we see products that are creating significant sickness and, and death, like from asbestos. Do you think there's the well, ability that for your systems to probably – or, or processes that could be built in attached to your systems that can raise alarms directly to asset owners about potentially dangerous products or materials. So originally they you know, Grenfell, if it was the right material, but new technologies came in and identified it was dangerous, the owners could be advised that there's a potential problem with their products or their building. Yeah.
1: Well, look, there's no technical reason why that couldn't happen. It's not really a technical problem, actually. <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's an implementation you know, issue and, and what have you. So the retail and automotive industries have been automating their supply chain for, for many, many years. So they have been laying these building blocks for a long time. And that, both of those industries have highly automated supply chains. So they know what they manufacture. They know when they manufacture it, where it's distributed. In food, they batch track everything in some food categories like meat and some fruits like mangoes, for instance, is a recent example where they trace right down to the unit level. So they know exactly what, when, where, and how things happen in their supply chain. So when you have that in place and it's automated, you have the ability to build a lot of intelligence. And so in the retail sector, they tend to track batch rather than unit. So they might not know who bought the jar of jam, right? But they know which supermarket it was sold in. Yeah. Right? So they can do much more targeted recalls because they know which batches of which products were produced when. And so when there's a problem, they can isolate in a much more targeted way you know, in the automotive industry, well, you know, every automotive manufacturer knows who bought their cars because they're all serialised. Like every car is its own unique identity. It has its own BIN number, etc. It has registration processes through regulation. So that's why you and I are getting notified about our cars because they know who's got them. Uh, there's no reason why in the building and construction industry that can't happen. I and mean, manufacturers are, increasingly getting much closer to the end user because supply chains are changing and so you you, you you no longer have a uniquely linear supply chain anymore where it's got to go from manufacturer down through to the wholesaler then to the you know, so you know manufacturers are building direct relationships with their with their customer, with the end customer. But you know, in order for them to do that, they, they have to have integrated supply chains. So, technically, yes, it's possible that the building industry could get to that point, but it hasn't even started putting building blocks in place yet. So, it's a little bit behind um, where it needs to be in order to, to get to that point. Having said that, though, those building blocks have been uh, well established now. So, while the other industries might have taken a bit long, you know, quite a long time to to get to where they are now, the other industries that haven't quite begun can take all the learnings and take all the tools that have already been built and shape them into something that works for them. And that's part of the work that Just One does in you know engaging with industry and understanding the requirements and helping them to select the correct building blocks that they need to achieve whatever it is that they need to achieve.
0: The interesting thing from my perspective with this is how, and, and I guess this is kind of a crazy word, how in the world can this be implemented? How can we make this happen? Now, we at the, at the very start of this, the first thing you said is exactly the truth of of this whole problem is that there are so many different actors or so many different people involved in the construction industry to actually make things happen. The you know, in terms of a relationship diagram across all of industry, it's a very messy web. Whereas yeah. the type of uh, sup- the type of relationships that occur with supply chains in the automotive industry and in retail and manufacturing is very linear in its sense that it's it's it its supply chains are very tightly governed and they're going to be the same all the time. So, therefore, the ability to maintain accurate records and communication. You know, it makes sense because it would demonstrate high levels of effic- of efficiencies. And then going back on another comment that you also made about, you know, people digitizing uh, their own their own way, <laughs> and the challenges that we'd have within our our highly web like uh, construction industry is that in. Uh, individual organisations to try and gain efficiencies would set up their own systems and processes, which then would fight against the greater good, which would be an industry wide one. The only, in my view, I think, and, and I'd be interested to gain your opinion on this as well. My view would be is the only way I could see this happen. And I don't, and I, and I, have, to, I have to admit, I have never, I haven't actually looked at the ruling from Opal Towers from the, from the New South Wales government, which might pick up on some of this stuff. But I can only imagine that actually having this, you know, birth to death of a product being tracked digitally, you know, in terms of creating that digital thread to using the technologies and systems and processes could only occur if it was regulated, you know, because I couldn't see industry doing this by itself. Yeah. Yeah. Look, I think
1: you're right. I think, um, you know, my, I've got quite a wide portfolio of industries that I look after at GS1. One. one of them is the freight and logistics industry, which is also highly, highly fragmented with about, you know, we've got about 40,000 op- road transport operators in the country, for instance, and every single company in the country, you know, uses a transport company or, you know, at some point, you know, because every product in the country at some point becomes great when it's being picked up and delivered to somewhere. So, you know, that's probably quite a good comparison to the construction industry in terms of the high level of fragmentation. And that over the years um, has, has required, they're not quite there in terms of regulation, but the industry itself has come together because they haven't been able to digitize and the digitisation has become and is becoming increasingly urgent. So that's been an interesting journey for them and you know, I won't bother you with with all the details of that sector, but I think regulation will have a significant role to play here because because of the high level of fragmentation. You know, other industries like rail and retail and automotive, like I said, they're highly concentrated, so it's easier for industry to get together and make a decision. They can collaborate and tick the boxes they need to tick and away they go. But if the industry doesn't agree on on data standards, then they'll find it very, very difficult to digitise and it's, they'll end up with bespoke systems and they won't have interoperability across the whole life cycle of products and you know they will find building trace systems almost impossible because they just simply the systems they use just simply won't be able to talk to each other. So you need to have that interoperability and so so whether it's part regulation and part this industry coming together anyway because they come to their own conclusion that that's what they need, it'll, it'll probably be a mix, I think. I like how you put
0: yourself in feed in both camps on that one. You're, you're voting for it <laughs> to do well.
1: Well, you know, I don't know how it's going to play out. You know, it's, um, I've only been really working in this particular industry for probably two or three years and, um, you know, it's very complex. It's a very complex sector, and uh, so it's, it's a matter of you know, where do you start. In some countries overseas, so in Norway and Sweden, for instance, they've mandated the use of, of GS1 identification for every building material in the country, so they've gone down the regulatory path, and that may, may be a sensible way to look at this here as well as a starting point, because once you get that foundation in place, you really, really are on the road to being able to, to do lots of different things.
0: Once you have that identifier in place, you talked about being able to plug in all the different yes. aspects that you need for your specific outcome. And yeah. I think that's the key thing. It's not trying to do everything in the first step. The first step is putting in the unique identifier for all the different products so that you can make that step. Now, in terms yeah. of tracking, I think one of the things that is probably interesting to touch upon with the uh, the area with freight, and and probably trying to almost I like using analogies when I talk about topics because it helps people understand, and a lot of people yeah. would understand right now the joys of uh, you know shopping online,
1: especially online. especially yeah.
0: especially over the last six months or nine months that we've all yeah. been uh, sitting around at home and, and 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 internet shopping instead of going out and about, but you know the joys of sitting there and and tracking your parcel on its on its route to uh turning up and each different courier company that you know depending upon the uh the freight company that the uh that the supplier chooses is the app is always different the way it's communicated is different and it demonstrates the challenges of having uh different systems in place whereas in an ima- imagining, you know, even even on ordering Domino's pizza, you know, you order Domino's pizza, and to try and entertain you while you're waiting for so long for your pizza, because you know they expect people expect to turn up in ten seconds. You know, they put up the driver's name and and where he what where he's where he is on the street, and you can track him. You know, same as Uber and that, you can track him exactly where they are. So the idea is is that it provides people with kind of an instant certainty. And those systems, unfortunately, are all disparate. They're all uniquely created for their individual businesses. Whereas mm-hmm. if uh, imagining a system from my perspective is like, well, if we come up with a universal system, no matter what product, no matter what uh, manufacturer, no matter what building type, whether it be a built a, you know, a vertical building or a thousand kilometer long road, that the user, the user interface to obtain this data could potentially be the same. Now, that's, you know, my uh,
1: well, Germanic you know, nature. <laughs> yeah, we have to be careful when we talk about a system because people start to think, oh, you know, that's never going to work because not everybody's ever going to use the same system. And if you're talking about a software system – then that's absolutely true. You're never going to have one gigantic database that tracks everything and, you know, that's just not going to happen, right? So you, the standards will work with whatever system you want them to work with. We're talking about the data. So every every system, whether you're running, you know, SAP or Oracle or Microsoft or any other in-house, built, so whatever software system you might be running, it requires data. Even, you know, technologies like blockchain, for instance, Um, You know, they're they're great data exchange technologies, but they still need data. So the data is kind of the oil, right, that runs through these engines, and it's the data that needs to be interpreted by these systems. So having that language, that, that digital language, a framework that you adhere to will enable any of these systems to interoperate. So it's not about having a single software platform, but it's having a single framework. It's kind of like talking about analogies, you know, so we live in Australia and, you know, we live in a multicultural society. So there's many languages that our citizens speak, but our general language is English. So when we want to talk to one another, we need to, you know, it might be our second language, because at home we speak Italian or Lebanese or whatever. But when we go to work, we speak English because that's how we can understand one another. And it's kind of a similar thing. Yep. Um, So, you you know, you you choose a a digital language so that systems can interoperate. And that's what GS1 brings to the table.
0: Now, maybe I'm talking too far into the future, but do you envisage a system like this and, and, and maybe it's maintained in the way that it is that the manufacturers keep their data on their own domains or websites and it's following the standards that are set out by GS1. Facility management systems, do you see that this sort of data would be what ties into these sorts of systems or do you see it yeah. as a separate data bank or data
1: set? No, well, you know, a facilities management system is just another system. It records activities, right? It records maybe, um, you know, when a service was was done or a piece of maintenance was done at a particular site at a particular time by a particular service provider. So you want to be capturing those sort of milestone events, you know. So this activity happened at this time, this place, um, you know, by this person and this is the result and that's a fairly typical data set it's the what why when when where and how right and so capturing those activities also have standardized frameworks so you know again they can be fed into facility management systems or asset management systems um, to then you know be you know have that data be utilized by the respective organizations but um you know capturing and recording those events is is definitely a um is definitely within
0: scope a bit of a pointed question for you <laughs> <laughs> does the g s one schema or the the data um does that does that align with the new or well, the recently released iso standards twenty three three 8, 6 and 23387 regarding the data dictionaries and the data templates. Is that something that's consistent with your approach?
1: So just one the GS1 standards are all ISO certified also. So yep. let's also put that out there because so that just to give people comfort that, that we work globally, we work very closely with ISO. In some cases we run the work groups, in other cases we participate in them or whatever. Um, and, you know, this sort is of ISO standards around. In terms of data dictionaries and data um, templates, the important thing is that they are interoperable. So often ISO standards are not very prescriptive. So, you know, they'll They're just very say, bored. right. So it's all the devil again is always in the detail. So the ISO standard might call for a globally unique identifier for example, but it may not prescribe which one you should use. And so people then go off and start to take these standards and they start to create their own templates and their own dictionaries based on what they think. So so the important thing here is that, um, is that these data dictionaries and data models align. And, you know, if you're going to use a particular a particular data dictionary, then, you know, everybody has to use the same thing. And if it's not prescriptive, then you have to make a decision about the prescription that you're going to use. Does that make sense?
0: Yeah. In other words, the ISO is not good enough yet. <laughs> no, it's places. not that
1: it's not good enough.
0: It place yeah. it's a it 's a placemark that's warm and fuzzy but not enough information it needs to be padded out a bit more with with more detail, which I guess is a purpose that they put in place so that it enables individual countries to obviously try and address it in the way that they wish to work with it but sure. um, I guess another key thing to to point out to the listeners is that g s one has a, a Memorandum of Understanding, I believe it is, with Building Smart uh, International. Uh-huh. So at an international level. Uh-huh. So for the listeners, obviously, or that are not aware of what Building Smart does, Building Smart is uh, in charge, or or the the holders of the IFC schema, which is our open uh, BIM format for model based element data. And it's a really good thing to see that we we have. Organization like Building Smart, that's it is focused on on models and um, interoperability with data structures, uh, working alongside GS1 to essentially partner and obviously kind of share knowledge where it's important to enable industry to move forward because that's something we're struggling with right now. But I guess and before we close out today, I guess one thing I think that's important because for for many of our listeners, they probably go, well, yep, it was a good conversation to learn about, you know, what, what could happen with GS1 and and how that could happen. But I think there's a couple of angles I think that's really important to kind of point out. So for, for people within industry, it's important to understand the benefits of this, the ability to track products uh, that, you know, as myself as an architect, knowing that what I've specified, the builder's actually installed. Mm. And because most of the time we are not there to inspect every single building product that is installed, and that's never going to be the case because we're not actually, in, you're not on site supervising the construction. You might perform a periodic inspection to find out. And you want to be able to know that, what you've specified is what's been installed. So that's where this potential identifiers in in a myriad of different formats may exist. But then it also provides frame of mind for asset owners as well, uh, that what a design professional has nominated to be installed actually has been installed by uh, the the contractors or the subcontractors. And I think, for members that are from government maybe it's time to be talking further up the chain about the potential to actually introduce this as uh, a regulation that this that, that, that we begin the journey to enable uh, a unique identifier for our, our building products uh, to prevent uh, you know to assist well it's not going to prevent but it could assist mm-hmm. to prevent further tragedies and and be able to potentially alert uh, asset owners you know when there are materials that we find 30 years down the track that are actually are quite dangerous that that you know they may need to act and i think that's probably the kind of takeaway from my perspective for it today what are your thoughts on yeah. that bonnie
1: so yeah so the, the, the relationship with, with building smart is to offer industry that next level of granularity all right so because GS1 is all about Product or item identification. So, so and and we know and and I I know I have a lot of manufacturers that have said to me, you know, I tender for 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 a a contract and I get specified and then my product doesn't get installed. You know, so uh, so you know, having a mechanism where products do have a birth certificate of sorts, where it's a registered identifier that can be validated is definitely a fundamental first step in being able to solve some of these issues. You have to have that unambiguous certainty about what something is. And so, you know, as builders and subcontractors decide perhaps to substitute, that may be okay, but there needs to be a feedback loop where they can report back, I suppose, for want of a better word, to say, well, I've substituted this product for this product and that this substituted product can be easily identified.
0: Or it's and, equal. and
1: that's Or equal. Right? So yeah. that's the, uh, you know, and, and if there's a problem for the forensic investigation then to be not so onerous. So, you know, I guess that's the the real crux of all of this. I can't stress enough how that sort of fundamental identification is key.
0: It's, yeah, well, it's even...
1: Kind of even lay, it's kind, kind of laying the slab for building the house, if you like.
0: <laughs> well, even even this is an idea, and if things were digitally tracked through the design process as well in terms of supply chain, suppliers could potentially um, gear up earlier. Knowing that mm. those products were going to be used in a building that was being procured, you know, and having conversations with with builders right this month, you know, about uh, you know some ho- the housing industry, and right now the the there's a potential that they could run out of timber in Australia. Wow! Because of all the bushfires.
1: Yeah. So,
0: imagine a situation where you can't get timber studs for a house. Because, you know, because of the supply chain issue, but because they don't know, they don't know how many projects are coming down the train in the next six Mm. to 12 months, you know, and could that mean that we can end up with, you know, a more lean supply chain where the cost of supplying stuff could be, you know, more economical as well, because they're only supplying in line with what the market's demanding. Uh, You know, it's, it's also interesting when you, you know, when you've got projects on tight construction programs and, and interior designers are specifying, uh, you know, tiles from Italy and tiles yeah. take, you know, 12 weeks to land on site but the program for the construction for the project is eight weeks. So how can the contractor, you know, justify or how can a contractor actually deliver a project and they just have to wait there for tiles? If those sorts yeah. of things could land, you know, there's so many opportunities and I know we could probably talk for those through those different opportunities for yeah. hours and hours on end. Uh, Because there are endless, but ideally it'd be nice to see some progress happen with this. And hopefully there's something buried in those reports that I'm yet to read about the Opal Tower report and the like. I know there's been a number of recommendations that have been made that have made their way into the NCC or in the process to be made uh, and other building regulations across Australia. But Bonnie, thank you very much for taking the time to talk with us today. Uh, I have one final question for you one that I've been asking all, all of my guests now, I'm interested to hear your views on this being involved in this industry for only two years. And, you know, it, it's good. It'd be nice to get the logistics perspective. What does BIM mean to you?
1: <laughs> well, um, for me, um, it's interesting, um, somebody called it, introduced it to me as the circle of death but um but no for me bim is uh is is really that cradle to grave process right so you've got you know being able to at the end of a job kind of hand over a full digital record of exactly you know of everything that's gone into a building right down to the light switches so that Owners have a full record of what they're buying into, and and that that record can be passed on to subsequent owners easily. So that you know, if there's problems down the track, that you know, so so BIM for me is is the full is the full kind of circle from design right through to right through to maintenance and and even beyond, even sort of reuse perhaps in in some cases. And GS1 plugs into there at various points, you know, so it plugs into the to the, the BIM model, if you like, in terms of, you know, what products are going to be used, what products were procured, the logistics in terms of products, you know, lots like of materials that were delivered to sites and that sort of thing. So for me, BIM is the end-to-end building process. That's kind of how I like to think of it. So I think you've got a lot of work to do. I think we've all got a lot of work to do, but it's exciting and I see nothing but opportunity. So thank you for having me and look forward to chatting again sometime.
0: Well thanks once again, Bonnie for your time. For more information on GS1 and what we discussed today, please head over to our website for further reading. I look forward to sharing our next podcast in a fortnight's time. Until then, good luck with your digital transition. For more information. Or if you'd like to continue the discussion in the comments section, head over to our website, thedigitaltransition.com. Remember to subscribe so you don't miss out on our future podcasts. digital transition.